You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. The U.S. Justice Department releases the redacted Mueller report... Investigators found no evidence sufficient to establish conspiracy or coordination between any U.S. persons and the Russians over the 26th campaign, but the Bears were busy. The Sea Turtle campaign sets a worrisome example of DNS manipulation. Sneaky apps have been booted from Google Play. Facebook apologizes, again. Notre Dame fire fraud, replication in cyber research, and an act of gratuitous computer destruction. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, April 18, 2019. The long-awaited and much-discussed Mueller report on Russian influence operations during the U.S. 2016 elections was released in redacted form this morning. At a pre-release press conference, U.S. Attorney General Barr reviewed the report. He said it established there was an effort on the part of Russian intelligence services to interfere in the U.S. elections, but that no U.S. persons were found to have collaborated in that effort. He declined one reporter's invitation to talk about the origins of the investigation, which have themselves become controversial, noting that such discussion was another matter and lay outside the scope of what he was prepared to go into. Attorney General Barr also explained the redactions. There were four categories of material that were redacted. These included, first, grand jury material whose redaction is required by law. Second, material that might compromise intelligence sources and methods was redacted. Third, and the Attorney General explained that this category accounted for most of the redactions, was material whose release might impair other ongoing investigations or prosecutions. And finally, information affecting the privacy and reputation of other persons not the subject of the investigation was also redacted. The White House reviewed the redacted version of the report and declined to invoke executive privilege. The Attorney General also said that a bipartisan group of members of Congress would receive an almost unredacted version. The only material they wouldn't see would be that in the first category, grand jury material, since disclosure of such information is restricted by law and its release doesn't lie in the discretion of the Justice Department. A quick look at the report, and we stress that our look was quick, there being 448 pages in the report, reveals the following highlights, none of them unexpected. Quote, The Russian government interfered in the 2016 presidential election in sweeping and systematic fashion. End quote. Much of that information occurred through leaks obtained by a Russian intelligence service and retailed through Guccifer 2.0 and WikiLeaks, among other channels. There was also, the investigation concluded, a Russian social media campaign designed to disparage the Clinton campaign and favor the Trump campaign. While the Trump campaign thought it would benefit from the discreditable material released through Russian efforts, 
The investigation did not establish that any members of the campaign conspired or coordinated with the Russians. And the Russian actors most often named will come as no surprise either. They're the Internet Research Agency and the GRU. With that, we'll leave the report with our editors for further close reading. Researchers at Cisco Talos describe Sea Turtle, a state-directed espionage campaign that's been active since early 2017. Most of Sea Turtle's operations have been in the Middle East, and the campaign is noteworthy for its sophisticated domain name system manipulation. Cisco Talos divides the victims into two distinct groups. The first group includes the targets proper, energy organizations, defense establishments, and foreign ministries. The second group are third parties used to reach the primary targets, telcos, ISPs, and DNS registrars. CrowdStrike and FireEye had earlier described aspects of this DNS manipulation campaign. FireEye tentatively attributed it to Iran. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security issued a warning about this activity in January. Cisco Talos finds the incident worrisome not so much in its immediate effects as in its realistic potential to undermine users' trust in the Internet as such. The company includes a plea to put DNS as a whole off-limits to offensive cyber operations. They don't make this comparison, but we will. Making DNS a prohibited target would be analogous to the protection the laws of armed conflict place around such essentially civilian and humanitarian facilities as hospitals, supplies of drinking water, and so on. That's a commendable aspiration, but arriving at an international consensus to leave DNS alone would seem to be a long process. It was difficult enough to get hospitals off target lists, and there's an obviousness and immediacy about hospitals that DNS just doesn't have. BuzzFeed reports that Google has booted six ad fraud apps from the Play Store. The apps, thought to be a subset of a larger number of related applications engaged in similar dodgy behavior, were not only engaged in ad fraud, but were also abusing user permissions in their collection of data. Some of the Android apps were popular, notably a selfie app that had more than 50 million downloads. The applications Google ejected from Play in this current round of expulsions were produced by the Chinese company Do Group. The apps asked for a lot of permissions and obscured the nature and destination of the information they would gain access to. Cybersecurity offers employment opportunities for people with all sorts of backgrounds and work experiences. Some folks are fresh out of school, while others are looking to move into the field from another line of work. Nathan Katzenstein is a bit of a combination of both of those things. He's got over 20 years of experience in IT, but decided it was time to head back to school and earn a master's in cybersecurity. He reached out to us and made the case that it's a path many are on these days, one worth sharing, so we got him on the line. I wanted to get into a market or into an area, a space where there was a new beginning and there was a lot more to grow, but I didn't want to lose um, any of my background. I wanted to leverage my experiences. So I felt that the cybersecurity area was an area that would really fit well, where I could bring my IT and management experiences and leverage that into this field. And so uh, what are your aspirations uh, when you get your master's? So where do you hope it takes you? So I have a background in the energy field. I worked in the deregulated energy, electric and gas um, area for about 16 years. And what I'm looking to do is to get into the uh, critical infrastructure protection. And what's your sense for the opportunities that uh, may present themselves once you're out there looking for a job? 
I know that it's it's tough to break into a into a new market, and I'm I'm well aware of that. As we all know, there's there seems to be a big gap in the the skills and market in the cybersecurity. Um, I believe the numbers I've read is that there are half a million jobs that are going unfulfilled. I think maybe there's it's an artificial gap, perhaps. You know, there's this joke about this man who's looking on the floor and some good Samaritan comes by and says, gee, what are you doing? And he said, and the man says, I'm looking for my key. So the good Samaritan helps him look for the key. And after a while, he says, well, where did you drop your key? And he said, oh, I dropped it across the street. So the good Samaritan says, why are we looking here? And he says, well, because here we have street lights. <laughs> so I think what companies are looking for um, are they looking for a lot of requirements that maybe don't exist in the real world? And, and for example, you want an SQL you, uh, programmer, you want a database person. So you can say, I'd like somebody with 10 years SQL experience, I'd like a, a seven-year uh, C-sharp programmer. Um, but when you look at some of the requirements for the cybersecurity jobs, where they're looking for individuals with 10 years of cybersecurity experience, it's very hard to find because it's there aren't that many out there. So I believe there's this artificial gap between the requirements, but there really are individuals out there who can answer the call. Maybe looking outside of the box, maybe you're looking for individuals that you know like math, for example, or like to solve puzzles, because these are the, the types of people that can really solve cybersecurity issues uh, for companies as well. So what are your recommendations for folks who, who may uh, feel as though they want to follow a similar path to you? They want to maybe reach out to a, a different part of uh, tech than they've been in before or open up some new opportunities for themselves. Uh, what are your recommendations? So my recommendations are not to be afraid. My recommendations are look at the market, see what area or what space you really want to and, and, and talks to you. And then go for it. You know, it's, it's never too late in your life. There's no reason that you shouldn't go ahead and try to teach yourself new skills, whether you want to do it on your own, whether you want to go for some certification, or if you really want to get a degree, master's degree. There's no question. Go ahead and, and do it. I think there's a lot that, that the market has to offer. Um, and I think that anybody who really wants to get into it should grab it with two hands. That's Nathan Katzenstein. He's finishing up his master's in cybersecurity this summer at Utica College. Yesterday, Facebook acknowledged inadvertently uploading email contacts of a million and a half users without the user's consent. The social network regrets this, says the social network, and it says it will remove contacts uploaded in connection with its now disenabled email password verification feature. The contacts may have found their way into data used to draw inferences for ad targeting and the people you may know feature. Whether those inferences will also be removed is, the Guardian reports, unknown. But Facebook regrets the whole matter and resolves to do better in the future. Zero Fox sees a wave of opportunistic scamming conducted around the Notre Dame fire. Ad fraud, direct fraud, malware installation, and even stock fraud. Be concerned and feel free to give help, but be skeptical and alert for the grifters' come-ons. The Washington Post interviews Tyler Moore, a professor of cybersecurity and information assurance at the University of Tulsa, 
who sees problems with the conduct of cybersecurity research. The issues apparently derive from how research uses data entangled with marketing. The University of Tulsa study was interested in how one might determine such information as frequency and severity of attacks, the efficacy of various security products, and how well various defensive tactics, techniques, and procedures worked. Marketing is more concerned with persuasion than it is with replication, and much of the raw data that underlies or might underlie published research into these topics is generally not readily available. And replication, of course, would need raw data. And finally, a former student at the upstate New York College of St. Rose, one Vishwanath Akuthata, has taken a guilty plea to charges that he destroyed 66 computers on the college's campus by inserting a USB killer into each of them. USB killers are, as the name implies, devices you insert into a USB port to overload a computer's surge protection. Such devices are readily available and easily purchased. We must ask, why? Mr. Akathota made videos of himself strolling around campus in February, saying, I'm going to kill this guy, and then doing so. Guy, in this case, refers to a computer, not a human being. He caused over $58,000 in damages, and when sentenced, will face up to 10 years in prison and a quarter of a million dollars in fines. Given the video Mr. Akathota took, it seems safe to say that the FBI and the Albany Police Department had little difficulty investigating the crime, Mr. Akathata's motive is unknown, at least to the general public. Resentment? A sense of injured merit? The libido ostentandi, which is how Cicero would have translated, Hey, look at me, y'all! We hear, by the way, that Cicero is all the rage in Silicon Valley these days. Around Mountain View and Sunnydale, they think he was this cool stoic. The lulls? Maybe. As far as we can tell, it's just another acte gratuit which is what Jean-Paul Sartre would have called just behaving like a jerk. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program. Quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. 
Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Robert M. Lee. He's the CEO at Dragos. Uh, Rob, I wanted to take a little bit of a walk down memory lane with you. I wanted to address how some of these industrial control systems worked in the days before computers. How was the security handled, and were things easier back then or harder or just different? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that it was different. I see a lot of discussion now of almost trying to take us back of let's go more analog um, and I'll, I'll come back to that point and where there's good discussion happening, but also some concern. So industrial control systems predate really computer systems. They predate uh, IP-based networks and the Internet and DARPA and ARPANET. Um, a lot of folks would, would hearken back to some of the early control systems. And I think the classic like textbook example is the, the water clock in Egypt. You know, I mean, like obviously a long time ago. Um, but when we're talking about the modern control system, Really, we start seeing like the 70s and 80s as being the introduction of the modern-ish industrial control system. And obviously at that time, we are still talking like more computer-like systems of of a system that is able to take an input and an output and actually have control over that in some mechanism. But we're looking more of serial communications. We're looking at analog devices. We're looking at, um, even in some cases, manual control systems. And, and the ability to operate and control the plant, obviously with much more manpower. The risk that has been associated with a lot of the industrial control systems today is in their connectivity. But a lot of risk existed before that as well. And this is where I think the balance is important. Go back to that initial comment I made, where I think it is fair. And there's some really good work going on in the community, like CCE, which is this idea of, of cyber-informed, consequence-driven engineering, and which is... Hey, I mean, I could, I, it, it's far more complex than this, and, and Idaho National Labs has done a lot of good work on this, but let me really simplify it to a basic statement, which is, hey, the process controller that's running our valve to an important part of our infrastructure, or let's just say the um, program logic controller that is involved in the safety of our system in a gas turbine facility, should it also be able to run Microsoft Paint and PowerPoint? You know, that's basically what the argument is, which is, you know, these, these common operating systems are coming on that can do a lot of different things. Like, do we really want what's controlling a really important system to be a common operating platform? Can we not do more design-driven, like, understanding that we can have purpose-built systems for some things, or even in some rarer cases, manual systems? Do we really need your safety system talking to a domain controller? Um, and I think that is a really good discussion happening, and I think it's important. On the converse of that, though, I don't want it to swing too far because our infrastructure has been modernized and is being modernized in a way that has added to the overall value. And it's not just a business value, but things like manual operations and I would say more simple control systems dictated so much more human interaction 
and especially in environments that are like petrochemical or, or chemical manufacturing and paper and pulp and others, you know, there's loss of life and injuries that come from dealing with highly dangerous type environments. And a lot of the automation that we went to and connectivity that we went to was not only about driving business value, but also driving safety. And so the idea that I see congressmen and, and politicians throw this out all the time now, oh, well, if a cyber attack happens, we'll just go back to manual operations and we'll do that because Ukraine did that to recover. It's like, yeah, Ukraine had to do that to recover at a couple sites. But you're not doing manual operations across multiple regions of the power grid in the U.S. if an attack happens. And you don't want to have to because you could really get people hurt. And so from the memory trip, things look a lot better than they were, I think, from a security aspect. But things were a lot worse than they are now in terms of safety and reliability. We, we've never had a more safe and reliable infrastructure than we do today. And we need to allow security to complement that. And we need to have design-built systems and make sure we are making smart choices. But we, we got to strike that balance because there, there are definite pros and cons, and, and they matter in this world. Robert M. Lee, thanks for joining us. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.